Cinephile. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? The great Billy Bob Thornton, one of my favorite actors. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Cinephile. Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. The most famous person that follows me on Twitter, Will Arnett, <laughs> is in the house. Vigo Mortensen, a tremendous story about working with Al Pacino on Carlito's Way. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Jackman and Stewart are why Logan works, why the film doesn't feel like a cheap exercise in bloody violence and its subversion of typical superhero movie tropes feels organic. That from David Sims of The Atlantic. I saw Logan rave reviews, tons of box office. Why is it such a hit? We'll try to explore that topic. Welcome to Cinephile. Back to life. Back to reality. Back to the old open. It's almost as if the Oscars didn't happen. I thought producer Dan may run the Moonlight Open one more time, but I'm with you. We don't. All of a sudden, it's going to be the middle of May. We're still running the Moonlight One Best Picture. Like we got it. We're moving on. New Year. Exactly. Thank you to all those who offer such kind thoughts. You know, we were just about to tape this, and Randy Moore, who's the one who comes up with these open, he even came in just now and said, "Oh, congratulations on the Oscars." And so I'm, I still feel like I won an Oscar. Everyone's been so uh, genuine and supportive. Ben Lines had said that to me over dinner at Republic. He's like, "Your audience is like so genuinely happy for you." Um, so I appreciate all the kind thoughts of everybody who chimed in. A lot of people have been asking, oh, by the way, if you love the podcast, I haven't asked this in a couple of times, and I think that's why our comments have not been as, uh, have been a little sparse. Go to iTunes, rate Cinephile, and make sure you post a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts, what you like about what we're doing, uh, what you may not like what we're doing. Please let us know. Once again, rate Cinephile on iTunes or post a review. As our friend Charlie likes to say, you rate movies out of Four Maple Leafs, but on iTunes, you can do five stars. Nice. Very well done. Charlie Frankel, whose brother, I mean, it's true. They're identical twins. I confused them even yesterday. By the way, if you think I'm uh, now hitting a dose of reality down in central Connecticut, uh, back from the Oscars, how about my boy Dan Stanzik? Turned 31, and he celebrated his birthday by hanging out with Wingo, Golick, and then shoveling snow for 45 minutes. Yeah, that happened. I don't know what else you want me to say about it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Getting up there, chasing you. Tell, celebrity birthdays. Your birthday might be the best birthday I've ever heard. No, I just did good research. I mean, we had Steph Curry on on Monday on the show, so I was doing research on him. I was like, oh, no way. We have the same birthday, not the same birth date. And I always knew Einstein. And uh, come to find out, our guy, Michael Caine, March 14th, Pi Day. That was unbelievable. I won't give you the typical Michael Caine impression I do, but the better one is if you just say the words, my cocaine, that's how Michael Caine says his name. My cocaine. My cocaine. My cocaine. You're going to do that for the next hour. When I first found out about that, I'm like, this is my new favorite game. My cocaine. My cocaine. So thanks once again for all of us listening to the Oscars. I had a lot of people who said, are there any stories you left out? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, we just emptied the bag of 30 minutes. But I did have a few friends saying, what's the Gilbert Gottfried story, which I then had to tell them privately. Gilbert has a good podcast on iTunes as well. So I checked out his movie podcast. And in, in support of all things Gilbert Gottfried, you should listen to it. It's more – he did one I listened to. It was um, like old movies, schlock movies, but favorite taglines. So I couldn't recognize. It's a lot of like Invasion of the Body Snatcher stuff. Although we should do a podcast at some point, Dan, about favorite taglines because there, there are so many great ones with movies. And in fact, Gilbert at the start of it said my favorite one to test the guys he was working with, which is on every corner, on every street, in every city, there's a nobody who dreams of being a somebody. Taxi driver. Thank you very much. Dan Stanzik from downtown, baby. His guys were clueless. Like, what? Like, how could you not know? That's taxi driver. Um, he also, you know, another one that I was thinking the other day is uh, Fargo. With all the snow around us, a lot can happen in the middle of nowhere. What a great tagline for Fargo. Like, and you think of the movie and how crazy it is. Like, that's so simplistic, 
Perfect. I'm just surprised they're still doing taglines. Like those used to be movie posters, right? Right. Yeah. But now, I mean, yeah, it's not as it's kind of gone passe. Um, you know, for me, as everyone knows, cinema is oxygen. Cinema is sustenance. Cinema is what I use to replenish myself. So, how to cope with the post Oscars letdown? I just go back to some of the classics, and I rewatched Yasujiro Ozu's 1953. Brilliant film, Tokyo Story, which is the best film ever made about family and generational divides and has Ozu's trademark low camera. I went back and watched a couple of my favorite 1930s gangster movies, um, 1930s style, I should say. White Heat actually came out in 1949. But uh, James Cagney as Cody Jarrett, the scene where he's eating a chicken wing and there's a guy stuck in the trunk and he goes, Ah, oh, a little stuffy, huh? Oh, let me give you some air. Blows it away. Totally a predecessor to Pesci and Goodfellas, like this little guy who's such a hair trigger, one of the most ruthless characters ever in movies. And, of course, the famous ending. At the end, Cagney knows that he's boxed in, and he's at this nuclear power plant, and that's where he shoots up you know, a few of the things that starts to blow himself up. And he, there's a relationship he has with his mom, and whenever his mom is talking to him, he's, you know, she always says, top of the world. So that famous last line, he says, made it, ma, top of the world, which I tweeted, and our friend Ben Lyons goes, oh, I know that line. It's from the movie Juice. And I'm like, hang on a second. The ending of White Heat, one of the greatest endings ever. Cagney blows himself up and goes, made it, ma, top of the world. He knows it from the movie Juice. So I think I've seen Juice. It came out like 92, Tupac and everything. But it, it does upset me that my boy Ben Lyons, well, I'm sure was tweeting it tongue-in-cheek. He's like, oh, I know White Heat because of Juice. A copper. There's another great scene, too. Cagney recognizes he's been double-crossed. And he goes, a copper. Can you believe that, boys? A copper. I was about to give half of my money to a copper. Also, The Roaring Twenties, which is a gangster movie. How about this? You get Bogart and you get Cagney, both great stars. At the time, they were not. Cagney was the big name. Bogart was always playing these gangsters and lowlifes, had various acting styles. They got along great, um, but Bogart approached a film much like I approached sportscasting. I just show up, I read the lines, I go home, and I get a good paycheck. Cagney was a real artist and really, you know, involved in the character and more of a method actor. But Roaring Twenties, also directed by Raul Walsh, who did White Heap. And then, of course, uh, that brings us, speaking of Bogart, to Casablanca. So part of the reason I indulge in some of these old classics is thanks to all those at Lemoyne. I had a wonderful visit there. Kathy Leah Grant for hooking it up. Margo, Lauren, Chrissy, Mike, Taylor, all the wonderful bright-eyed students brimming with optimism. It's so great. Speaking about rejuvenation, you go to a college campus and you can just feel all the life around you because everybody has such big ideas. And thanks to Phil Novak in particular who let me talk to the film courses. He said to me, I'll give you like 30 to 45. I blasted through probably about an hour. And then the second time, thankfully, I shortened it up. So thanks, Phil, for understanding. And his wife, Julie Grossman, said I have an open invite to teaching the film noir class next year. So I'm in for that. And thanks, of course, to Dan's parents, Mark and Katie, and his brother Jimmy and girlfriend Corinne, who took me out to the Dino Barbecue. He was very generous to them. We had a wonderful time. A lot of laughs. Dan's dad, a little bit like John Lithgow, and very loud like Dan. He reminded me of his son. He's loud and funny. And uh, there wasn't a lot of oxygen at the table because between me and Katie, that's a couple of yammers. So I really felt bad for Jimmy and Corinne. I think they got in maybe 10 words edgewise. But I think they enjoyed themselves. Kareen, but it's fine. My my dad mispronounces it too, so you're you're good. I had a Kareen that I was friends with in college, Kareen Murray, and then I knew a Corinne at one of my first TV jobs. She spells it like Corinne, so it's confusing. So it is Kareen. It's Kareen, yeah. I felt bad for her. I texted Jimmy after. I go, listen, apologize to her. She didn't get like five words in. He's like, no, she was just there to hang out. Yeah, they're quiet by nature anyway. Mark and Katie are, as you said, yammers. No, but it was great. We had a very, very good time. So... Um, part of that conversation, going back there, talking about classics, came to Casablanca. So our friend Mike Greenberg 
tweeted me last week and said, hey, how great does this book sound? It's called We'll Always Have Casablanca. It's by Noah Eisenberg. And then Kathy Leo Grand, whose generosity knows no bounds, then sent me the book. So I've read it. So I, I tweeted back to Green. He said, listen, you read the book. We'll have you come on Cinephile. We can talk about Casablanca. Uh, he said, "Deal." So hopefully we'll follow up with with Mike. Would love was to I supposed on. to ask him to come on? No, today? that's a, no, no, no. Did, right, I, right. did I drop the ball? Because no, 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 he's no, on vacation. He's on vacation right now. We'll get Mike another time. But but just for those who have checked it out, I will say this: it's Casablanca for initiates. Like if you're someone like me who knows quite a bit about the film, then I I didn't learn a ton. It was a nice reminder of why the movie is such a classic. But I wish he had talked more about the production design. Michael Curtiz is the director. I think it's fascinating that he is not one of the great directors of all time, and yet he directed arguably the greatest film of all time, and he doesn't even really mention Curtiz or his filmography. He talks a bit about Bogart, the fact him and Bergman, an iconic relationship. You know, Bogie was very insecure on the set. He goes, look at me, I'm this older guy, always played gangsters and lowlifes. I got a receding hairline, like no one's ever going to believe me as a romantic lead. So he very much kept to himself. He would do his lines, go back. Him and Claude Rains got along pretty well. I might have a drink with him, but but Ingmar, uh, sorry, Ingrid Bergman, it sounded like there were sparks flying, and Bogey's wife was very insecure, so she was always like, anything going on? He's like, no, nah, trust me. But it's funny, when you watch the film, <laughs> and Bogey said this, he goes, the way Ingrid Bergman looked at me, all of a sudden everyone thought I was the most handsome man in the world. And then he went from a career of playing gangsters and lowlifes to like a romantic lead and you know, the African Queen and To Have and Have Not, the movies with Lauren Bacall. So it's amazing how it changed his trajectory of his career. Speaking of actors not getting along, Claude Rains called Paul Henry Paul Hemroyd on the set. So that was kind of amusing. None of them always gets along well. But here's one of the good quotes about Casablanca. And I think this is one that really kind of speaks to why it's it's so loved. And this is by Algin Harmet. She put it in her book. This is echoing to a large degree of the sentiment expressed both by Bergman and by Leslie Epstein. There are better movies than Casablanca, but no other movie better demonstrates America's mythological vision of itself. Tough on the outside and moral within, capable of sacrifice and romance without sacrificing the individualism that conquered a continent, sticking its neck out for nobody, sticking its neck out for everybody when circumstances demand heroism. No other movie has so reflected both the moment when it was made, the early days of World War II, and the psychological needs of audiences decades later. One part that I did like about Eisenberg's book is he, he makes it very relevant to today's refugee crisis because the entire film is populated with refugees. For those who haven't seen Casablanca, they, you know, they're in Casablanca, which is northern Africa and Morocco, and they're trying to get exit visas, what's called the letters of transit, which Bogart has, you know, some specific ones. And then you try to go on to Lisbon or go to America. So Bogie is, you know, world-weary cynicism. He's never leaving Casablanca. He runs his saloon and that's it. But when they're making the movie, there's one scene they're talking about the Nazis and the raids in Paris. And a couple of the crews started crying and the cast members. And Curtiz had to call cut. And he was like, I'm sorry, we were in Paris. that like We were there when the bombings were taking place. It's a very emotional movie for us. So it's interesting watching it now with, through today's prism of what's going on with regards to refugees and the controversy there. Another quote here from Harry Reasoner. This was in 60 Minutes in 1981. This was a TV segment called The Greatest Movie Ever Made. He explained Casablanca in four clip declarative sentences. Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets girl back again. Boy gives up girl for humanity's sake. That's a very good way of describing why this movie is so beloved. And Werner Herzog, of course, the great filmmaker, he said this about any good movie. It sticks to you forever. It never leaves you. It becomes part of your existence. So after reading the book, I watched the movie again. I'll say this, especially for our viewers. If you've never seen Casablanca, it is, as Pauline Kael, one of the great film critics of all time, would say, Hollywood hokum. It is very cheesy. It's unabashedly romantic. It's definitely corny. You have to get in the flow of a film made almost 75 years ago. 
And Polly and Kale, in her review, she called it one of the great bad movies of all time. She was, it's not a great movie, but it's so entertaining, it's well done. I, I wouldn't go that far. I do think it's a great movie. It's generally referred to as one of the top five of all time. No matter what list you'll find, it's generally Citizen Kane, Casablanca, Godfather, Gone with the Wind. And then after that, there can be some uh, some differentiation. But I, I think the script in particular is amazing. Still to this day, it holds up. You look at the list of best screenplays of all time, Julius Epstein, um, and his brother, Philip, and Howard Koch. By the way, Julius Epstein is Theo Epstein, the Chicago Cubs president, his great uncle. So talk about the family lineage there. Uh, the dialogue is just so good. They have Casablanca revivals all the time. And the book they mention, people are always quoting the dialogue. I haven't seen it in at least a decade. And even I remembered at least a half a dozen scenes because they're just so famous. And, of course, that final incredible scene. I'll say this about Casablanca. It's going along at a good pace. It's a really good movie, especially if you're into that that mood. And I think if you're watching it with, you know, a significant other, I think that could add to it, like I said, with the romanticism. But that final scene, you talk about elevating something, that is pure movie magic. Like it's literally tangible while you're watching it. When Bogart gives that famous speech to Bergman, it's been spoofed everywhere. In the book they mentioned a couple of years ago, J.K. Simmons, our friend of the podcast, was on with Kate McKinnon on SNL. And they did a spoof of that. And he's playing the bogey role uh, giving the whole speech. And she's like, okay, okay, let me just go get on the plane. Like, he's giving this great speech. Like, all right, okay, thanks. Anyway, see you later. The Simpsons has spoofed it. Like, people who have never seen Casablanca know that speech and know all the lines. You know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday and for the rest of your life. What about us? We'll always have Paris. And later on, he says, you know, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. And then she looks down, she's sad, and he's like, oh, no, here's looking at you, kid. Like, it really does give you chills when you watch it again. It's such a great scene. And then, of course, the scene after that, Claude Rains and him walk away. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So if you've never known anything about Casablanca, check out Noah Eisenberg's book. We'll always have Casablanca. And check out the movie, which I'm sure is readily available. And we'll try to get Greeny on here at some point to talk about it. Dan, your thoughts on Casablanca? I think it... I mean, holds up might be the wrong word, but of all the movies that were made, I mean, it's made in the early 40s, I think 42. If you were to recommend five movies that still hold up or are worth seeing from way back then, it's got to be among them. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen On the Waterfront, et cetera. Right. I enjoyed it. Bogey's my guy. Yeah. Um, You forgot to mention Round Up the Usual Suspects. Right, Claude Rains. Which obviously is a phrase we know. It's a movie we know and love. Yeah. And one of the most popular lines often misquoted from the movie is play it again sam never actually mentioned in the film she says play it sam play as time goes by right and then later on when bogart says if she can stomach it i can play it play it again and yeah it's woody allen's fault because he has a play which was called play it again sam which was then made into a movie and it was about a you know a guy who's typical nebbish trying to find the right girl so he relies on bogart for advice and in fact woody allen a few years ago said he, he discredited the movie he said it was a it was an early screenplay it wasn't very good it's nothing that i'm proud of people thought he must have been obsessed with casablanca he's like no i just was writing my typical romantic loser i'm like oh bogey's a cool guy and it, it is interesting how the movie like in 43 it won best picture best director best screenplay did great box office but really picked up steam like in the 50s and especially the 60s like college kids love casablanca and they're all like it started to become expression the way bogart would smoke the cigarette like don't bogart that joint like there was, you know, the fact that the fedora and the trench coat, even the poster is so beautiful. The Good German, which is not a very good movie with George Clooney, came out a few years ago. The poster is an exact facsimile of Casablanca. It's trying to conjure up that image. Havana, which is a movie which did not do well. I actually like it. But Redford, Lena Olin, again, very similar themes of, of Casablanca. I believe there's a Havana reference. I have to look it up in Seinfeld once. I, be, I don't know if it's George or Jerry, but somebody's annoyed. He goes, can you believe it? I paid five bucks to watch Havana because he forgot to return to the video store. I don't think it's the Rochelle Rochelle episode, but I have to look it up. Havana is mentioned at some point. Check out Casablanca. Now we get to the Wolverine. 
How in the world is Logan at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes and rave reviews? I thought it was just a big old superhero movie. First and foremost, credit goes to James Mangold, 53-year-old director, and I think he's terrific. Copland, Girl Interrupted, Walk the Line, and then, of course, the first Wolverine back in 2009, the first standalone film, I should say, 2011. He has had a couple of clunkers, notably Kate and Leopold with Hugh Jackman and Night and Day, horrific hot pile of trash with Tom Cruise. But Mangold is a really good director. Like any director, he's going to have some problems along the way. But think about the movies I just said. Copland, okay, full of testosterone. Girl Interrupted, Angelina Jolie won an Oscar for it, went on a ride in a mental hospital. Uh, Kate and Leopold, romantic film. Night and Day, action movie. Wolverine, superhero movie. So I'm always impressed. Walk the Line, great romantic biography. So I'm always impressed by a director who can do all these different genres and bring his own material to it. And Mangold wrote the story for Logan. He co-wrote the screenplay, and he directed it. And he said, I'm going to focus on character development and not just superhero spectacle. And about 20 minutes into it, I said, oh, I got it. Now I can tell why everyone is raving about Logan. It's because it's an atypical superhero movie in that it's not all about digital effects. It's not all about some weird guy coming from the sky. It's not about big green lights. It actually feels a lot like Mad Max meets Unforgiven. Like it's it's very much an action movie. It's just like an action thriller. And Jackman, as always, knocks it out of the park. He plays that irascible, ornery character. Like, nobody else can play Wolverine like that. He is just a gruff, angry guy who just wants to be left alone. The movie opens. It's 2029. He's drinking his days away. He's like a driver for hire. One of the first scenes, he's driving like a bunch of girls. The problem, like, hey, look at this. They're flashing. He's like, like only Wolverine. I got, I got no time for this, right? I just want to get drunk and forget about all my mutant friends because they're pretty much all gone now. You know, he's this aging loner who becomes intent on finishing his final mission uh, when this mysterious woman shows up and she asks for help. Uh, for her and her daughter, they're trying to get to the border. And then from there, the story takes off. A villain from his own path, past, excuse me, comes back to haunt him again. Familiar characters, uh, Caliban, the albino, Stephen Merchant, uh, Ricky Gervais's guy. He's actually in the movie. Surprising casting, but he's good. And, of course, Professor X, our boy Patrick Stewart, who now suffers from these crippling seizures. Um, but, again, you get a really good director in Mangold. You get two really good actors in Jacqueline and Stewart. So that can transcend, you know, this typical idea of superhero movie. And then, like I said, they don't rely on the special effects. It's it's exceptionally violent. The first five minutes, I'm like, wow. The, the first, the claws come out right away. And clearly, this movie earns its R rating. And that's something to be said. In today's movies, you find that, you know, violence ends up becoming diluted. But they really, they get their money's worth with regards to that. And as far as villains, you can always know. If there's an English accent, count on a sniveling Richard E. Grant to be bad. Uh, so along with the violence and this tortured character, without the digital effects, it is a, a well-moving, well-paced action movie. And Deathly Shades of the Western. I mentioned Unforgiven, showing the perils of violence. There's a scene where Patrick Stewart is watching a Western. He turns to his daughter, and it's the movie Shane. And he goes, oh, look, this movie came out almost 100 years ago. Shane actually came out in 1953, for the record, and the movie's set in 2029. But we get his point. It's meant to be elegiac. Um, not everybody likes it. I did like this quote from Matt Brunson of Creative Loafing. His uh, quote was, it's Stan Lee by way of Cormac McCarthy, but the end result, basically no country for old X-Men, suffers from its own sense of self-importance. Didn't agree, but I did like the review and the fact he included Cormac McCarthy. Also, if you're an ER fan, Eric LaSalle shows up for a little bit. Guess what happens to his character? But it was nice to see him getting a paycheck. I'm like, oh, Eric LaSalle is still in demand. I'm giving Logan. Originally, I tweeted three. I'm going to go up a little more because I've been thinking about it a lot. I really did enjoy it. Three and a half Maple Leafs for Logan, James Mangold's film. And it's uh, Wolverine riding one last time. Dan, have you seen Logan yet or no? 
I haven't, but that's a hell of a review. I'm not a big superhero movie guy. Right. So, I mean, Deadpool was a typical superhero movie I Correct. liked. Uh, hearing that phrase got me to want to see it. Maybe not in theaters. We'll see. Yeah, maybe wait till DVD. That's all right. Uh, the next one, this is one, I, speaking of atypical, one that I had no interest in seeing was Get Out. And I said, listen, I don't, I don't like horror comedies. It's just not my thing. 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, I'm like, oh, God, if our, if our man Matt Atchity thinks it's this good, let's go check it out. And it's like Meet the Parents meets uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a black guy dating a white girl, and it starts out. She wants him to meet her parents, and he's like, "Hang on a second, does the, you know your parents are on black?" And she's like, "No, trust me, Mike. My parents are super liberal. Like my dad's going to tell you he would have voted for Obama three times. Like it's totally cool. I've dated black guys before." And he's like, "Yeah, okay, sure. See where this is going." So they go to the house, and it's you know typical parents are really sweet, friendly, a little bit like overly friendly, overly accommodating. But he's kind of like, "All right," because we're seeing it through his his eyes. This is Daniel Kaluuya, is the guy who plays Chris Washington. So it's a little bit bizarre, but it's like whatever. You know, you're meeting someone's parents, a little strange. The first thing he notices is that why does he have like all black help? Like the maid is black. There's a gardener who's black. And you can see it in Chris's eyes. And then the dad, Bradley Whitford, by the way, people know him from Aaron Sorkin's vehicles. He's excellent. He's like, I get what you're thinking, right? How come this white couple has all these, you know, black servants? So to speak? I get what you're thinking. He's like, well, yeah, kind of. He's like, no, because what it was was uh, my parents, when they were dying, you know, they looked after them. So after my parents passed, I just want to kind of keep them there. He's like, oh, okay, interesting. But then some spooky stuff starts happening, and now Chris has got his, his guard up. Allison Williams, by the way, plays his girlfriend. She looks like a cross between Jennifer Connelly and Amanda Peet. The whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, if you just put those two together, that's what they would be. Catherine Keener plays Bradley Whitford's wife. She's also been great in so many indie movies over the years. She's really good. And by the way, about 10 minutes in, as Whitford's talking to him, the kid, Daniel, he's like, by the way, I would have voted for Obama a third time. Greatest president of my lifetime. <laughs> I started laughing right away at the theater. You can just see one of these white liberal dads saying this is black guy. Even later on, too, like all these white people are coming over. And it's like the, this And this is what makes it so good, Jordan Peele's movie, is it's really a, a trenchant satire of the way white people view blacks. And, you know, it's just like, oh, you've got a great genetic makeup. Like, what's that supposed to mean? Like, oh, just, you know, with, with your background, it's like, oh, okay, you're just trying to say black people are stronger or tougher. And like, references to just athletic achievements and these guys. There's always these kind of, this, I wouldn't say racism, but there's this underlying stereotyping that's going on. Um, and then the chills start to happen. And it's it very much a, a B-movie in that it's diabolical and out there. But in a horror movie like this, once the twist comes, you get a buy-in, and Jordan Peele executes it really well. Once, once you start to figure, okay, what's going on? Because think about it. If you're watching a scary movie, and then once you find the hook and you go, oh, the hook stinks, then I'm out. Then it, then it distorts your perception of the entire film. But if you're enjoying the suspense as it's going along, then you get the hook and you go, oh, that is screwed up. Then the rest of the way, you're, you're fine to go. And I wouldn't say it's terrifying. I walked out of the theater, and then a guy in the street saw me trying to sell tickets. I was in Kansas City at the Big 12. And then I just said, hey, did you, have you seen Get Out yet? He's like, no. And I go, God, it's hilarious. And he goes, what? I go, it was really funny. He goes, he goes, my uncle saw it. He goes, he ruined it for me. He told me the, the plot point. I'm like, yeah, that's what happens. He goes, he didn't say it was funny. He said it was scary. I go, well, maybe my, my uh, mind is a little demented. I find things a little funny. But I wouldn't call it scary. There's a few chills, definitely. But I, I found it amusing. Um, and the box office has been sensational. I mean, th this is one of the great stories of recent movies. I mean, it was made for peanuts. And it's already made $115 million. I think the budget was maybe $10 million. So Jordan Peele, who people knew from Key and Peele, now all of a sudden has a career as a director. So good for him. It's uh, pretty good stuff. Get out. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Horror comedies just aren't my kind of thing, so I don't know if I'd ever watch it again. But if you don't know that genre well or if you do like those kinds of movies, go see it. Because the reason it's made so much is the repeat business. Everybody's seeing it and then saying, hey, you got to go see it again. Especially, I think, for people in interracial relationships. As I tweeted, and I was proud of this one as I sent it to Dan, uh, this movie's going to do to interracial audiences what Jaws did to beach lovers. Just, Just – 
buyer beware what you're going into here. Get out. We're going to do quick reviews here, 60-second reviews. I don't know if we have to actually put a clock up, Dan, but we'll keep it to 60 or so. I'd have to eyeball it, so we'll just – if you're getting a little long, I'll just yell at you. Fair enough. I'll go quick on this one. Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, this is an animated film that was nominated for Best Animated Movie. Um, I was hoping it would win the Oscar. wasn't surprised that it didn't. Zootopia won, which was also good. But Kubo is, is definitely a daring movie. It's about a spirit from his past who's causing to wreak havoc on a young little boy. And he's got two friends, Monkey, voiced by Charlize Theron, and Beetle, voiced by Matthew McConaughey, who are trying to find out the mystery of his dad's death. And he's got the shamisen, which is this magical musical instrument, hence the two strings of the title. It's unbearably sad, uh, yet uplifting. It's, it's a melancholy kids film, probably the most melancholy kids film I've seen since Up!, but I really enjoyed it, and I recommend it. If you like uh, Japanimation, if you like animated movies that are serious and heartfelt, then I highly recommend Kubo and the Two Strings, which is currently available on DVD. It was in theaters late last year. The Accountant, I defer to my boy Dan. This is an action movie. It's like Death Wish meets Rain Man as I was watching it. Ben Affleck and a very appealing cast. Lithgow, who's like Dan's dad. Uh, J.K. Simmons, who, of course, we love. And Jeffrey Tambor, who I love for Arrested Development. He's in a few scenes. Um, also your girl that we love. Anna Kendrick. It took you way too long to get there. I don't care about her. I take Jeffrey Tambor over, over whatever the hell, Anna Kendrick. If Jeffrey Tambor's in the movie, that's, that's exciting to me. I like the older middle-aged white men. Uh, but the story is ludicrous. I mean, it started, I think, promisingly. Like, I'll say this for the movie because some people have despised it. It's always watchable. Like, it, it never was like, oh, this is ridiculous. You go, okay. Now he's got a machine gun. Now he's blowing, blowing away some people. I'm like, all right, but he's still kind of dealing with his autism. Like, he's, it's higher functioning. I mean, I think it's all goofy, and the, the ending is terrible, and generally the story is ludicrous. But I gave it two Maple Leafs. Like, I didn't think it was horrid. It's just a big disappointment. Honestly, I thought the whole movie was a social commentary about autism, but that's a little too deep for this podcast right now. Do you, would you say it's the first miss by Affleck as a director? Well, no, because the other one, oh, he didn't direct it. Oh, he didn't? No. Oh, okay. But the one that just came out, the gangster movie, that was a huge miss. The one that came out earlier this year. Yeah, that's his first miss, unfortunately. Yeah, Affleck and this one, I think Gavin O'Connor directed it off the top of my head. But the one that he actually came out uh, earlier this year, the gangster film, uh, based on... Um, the yeah. White Knight or something? Uh, Live by Night. Live by Night. Yeah, that's the first one he's had that actually struggled. But yeah, but you're right for... Affleck, but that's the thing. I guess you could just say, well, as an actor, he's kind of scattered. As a director, normally pretty good. But Live by Night apparently is awful. 35% Rotten Tomatoes. Anything else in the account? Go ahead. Uh, no, not really. I mean, there's a twist in there that if you don't see coming, then you don't watch enough movies. <laughs> um, but Significant I mean, eye rolling. Yeah, the idea, I guess, is just that there's this high-functioning accountant who is also kind of dealing with guns and is almost superhero level, I guess. Yeah, that's why, like, I... Like, I it, Hard to believe it's reality. Yeah, I guess that's the part of the biggest issue. It's just so unbelievable. But I, I want to give it credit for being ambitious because they were trying to meld two things that shouldn't be melding, like autism and action movie. Like what? But, uh, entertaining though. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell people not to watch it. It's worth your two hours. But yeah. at the end of it, you're like, oh well, I saw that coming, and <laughs> eh, you know, I'm kind of done with it. Pretty much. L. Is a foreign film, which you will not forget. Um, when I reviewed Nocturnal Animals, I forgot to mention the first three minutes of Nocturnal Animals. As my cousin Zahid that texted me, you cannot unsee the oh, first three minutes of Nocturnal Animals. It's unbelievably disturbing. And to continue the disturbing theme, we have the movie Elle, which is the story of a woman, middle-aged woman, who is very unlikable, aloof, cold, chilling. She's the head of a successful video game company who is brutally raped. And then tries to eventually track down who did it, 
And once she kind of figures out who it is, then engages in more rape and S&M. And you're thinking, wow, that sounds pretty whacked out until you figure who the director is and you go, of course it is. Paul Verhoeven is the director who gave us such films as Starship Troopers, RoboCop, Basic Instinct, and Showgirls. This is his 16th feature. So if there's anything that's going to have some the, a story that's perverse and cruel and sexuality and bizarrely funny, then you pretty much know it's going to be Verhoeven. I'll give you an example. The woman, Elle, Isabel Huppert, who was nominated for Best Actress, which is why I saw the film. Like, well, I have to see it before the Oscars. And, I, and Ben Lyons and I were both joking. Thank God she didn't win because we would have had to explain Elle to the side and say, what's it about? I'm like, uh, it's basically rape is a major element of the story. She's having an affair with a married man who calls her up because he wants to, you know, have a little hanky-panky. And she tells him it's her period. And he says, well, it's okay. I'll just wear a condom. I don't mind a little blood. Later on, he goes to her office, closes the door, shuts the blinds, grabs a garbage can, which might as well be a pail, drops his pants, and then just says, hey, I, I know you like to be – I know you like me to be unpredictable. And you're like, what is this movie? Later on, she has a son – uh, sorry, yeah, she's a son, and him and his girlfriend, the girlfriend's a total wretch. They have a kid. Kid comes out, not even close to biracial, like dark black baby, and obviously her son and the girlfriend are both white. And the baby comes like, it's a boy! And the look on her face, she's like, I think you should test to see who the father is. You're like, what? what is this? Like, amidst the rape, we have these just odd jokes about gender and race. But it's some people liked it. I get good reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Was not my kind of movie. She she does these video games which are filled with sex. She's like, no, there should be more phallic, more rape. Like it is, it is a movie that you will not forget. I only give it two Maple Leafs because I thought it was an unpleasant viewing experience. I give Isabel Huppert credit because that is not a tough role to play to have to do these scenes. And she's just being repeatedly just punched and beaten. But Verhoeven is uh, for some people a mad genius. But it got me to thinking. This this is the better issue of seeing L. It creates the top five most disturbing list, which I'm very excited to discuss now. The most the most screwed up movies I've ever seen. We kick it off with Irreversible. Director Gaspar Noé, a girl is raped in a desolate tunnel, and the story is told backwards. Shades of Chris Nolan's Memento. The gorgeous Monica Bellucci is the woman. Her husband, Vincent Cassell, is also in the film. He's not the one who commits the rape. Uh, here's a quote, though. This is really good. Fails because of its gratuitous rape and violence and also because of its pretentious and intellectually one-dimensional grounds, which make the violence at the end feel even worse. I can't remember the exact critic, but I was looking that up the other day, and that's that's a good example of irreversible. Like, just not for the squeamish, for sure. Another film is The War Zone, which I think is a great movie. Tim Roth is the director. Many know him, of course, from his work with uh, Quentin Tarantino. And it's Ray Winstone, great in The Departed, and Tilda Swinton, her parents, Anything seems to be going okay, working class, English family, until you find out Ray Winstone with two kids, the 15-year-old boy who the story is told through, and the 18-year-old daughter is having sex with his daughter. Incest is the theme of this movie. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. Good reviews, but significant walkouts. I was in college at the time. I remember Tim Roth spoke, but he's like, yeah, you look up, your movie's being shown, and you just see people getting up going, no, enough. And yes, that scene is shown in vivid detail. More disturbing movies for you. How about Salo, Pier Paolo Pasolini's film, 1979. Here's all you need to know. Marquis de Sade. It's based on Marquis de Sade's most extreme novel. And the story is about four decadents who kidnap dozens of young men and women to the most hideous forms of torture and perversion. If my friend Alpha is listening, he's going to start laughing because you have to look to find this movie. Royal Theater, College Street in Toronto, plays like once a year. Like only the true freaks show up to watch this movie. And I'm laughing because it is so screwed up. You're like, how did anybody greenlight this movie? 
Two more to go. Get ready for this one, Dan. Sick. This is the life and death of Bob Flanagan, super masochist. I used to work in a movie theater. This documentary was playing here. It was all like indie movies. I remember giving tickets to people who were going to see Sick. I'm like, are you ready for this film? They're like, no, we heard it's a very intense documentary. I'm like, okay, good luck with it. Here's the story. It's about a performance artist born with cystic fibrosis who has controlled self-inflicted pain to deal with his uncontrollable suffering. So he's torturing himself because he realizes his own body is turning against him. So he feels like he can win this victory by causing the pain himself before his body turns against him. How does he do that? Explicit scenes of genital self-mutilation. Roger Ebert quote, one of the most agonizing films I have ever seen. Go look up Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flay. Also very well-reviewed. Critics are like, it's a great film. Screwed up, but it's great. And the most disturbing movie I've ever seen. 1976, got an NC-17 rating. It's a Japanese film called In the Realm of the Senses. If you're a real movie geek, you've heard of this one. Nagisa Oshima's disturbing, to say the least, chamber drama of erotic obsession is based on a true story of a woman arrested in Tokyo in 1936 in possession of her lover's severed genitals. The fictional lovers, Tatsuya Fuji and Aiko Matsuda, having exhausted their sexual repertoire, begin strangling each other to sustain their pleasurable sensations, bringing sex to a deadly conclusion. This is from Entertainment Weekly, 100 Great Movies of All Time. They had it number 99 on the top 100 foreign films, and they called it some kind of great movie, certainly with plenty of contemporary resonance. Also mentioned for Bad Lieutenant, which is a great movie that I love, Mad Dog Russo from Mike and the Mad Dog plays the guy, the play-by-play voice, who Harvey Keitel is listening to. Keitel plays the bad lieutenant, no name but a brutal guy. Drugs, sex, violence, you name it. And he's betting heavily. To show what a jerk is, he's betting heavily against the Mets. It's Mets-Dodgers World Series. So the, the, the crazy thing, it's Mad Dog's voice. Ah, here we go, Dale Strawberry's up. And Keitel's the only guy who's so rotten up that he's cheering against the Mets. He goes berserk in one scene when Strawberry hits a home run, pulls his gun out, starts shooting up his radio. All i got to say, there's a scene with two teenage girls you will never forget because Keitel pulls them over, and then they say, well, please don't tell our dad. And he goes, all right, what are you going to do for it? And that's all I'm going to tell you about that. And there's also a scene where a nun gets brutally raped. It is a scene and a movie about sin and redemption. Martin Scorsese, when he was with Roger Ebert, reviewing a top ten films of the decade, not the year, the decade, included Bad Lieutenant as one of the top ten movies of the decade. He said, my old friend Harvey Keitel, check out Bad Lieutenant. That might have been the worst five minutes of the podcast. (laughs) I don't want to see any of those. That was terrible. Oh, my God. All right. And now we move on to After Showcase. After Showcase. A lot of, a lot of buzz here in the studio with a list of disturbing movies. Frankel pointing out Dance in the Dark. Yes, Lars von Trier is the director. Any Lars von Trier movie is going to be very screwed up. Breaking the Movies is actually a great film. I think after that, he's kind of gone off the reservation. Dance in the Dark, Bjork got a great rave reviews for a performance in that movie, and she's really good in it. But after that, his career is just screwed up films. Uh, Dan chiming in also with The Crying Game, which... Talk about great screenplays. I remember Cicely were like, that screenplay is so good because nobody sees it coming. Nobody saw that twist coming. Neil Jordan wrote the script. I'm like, yeah, nobody saw it coming, and nobody forgot about it either. Sean Penn, one of the great actors, alive, best movies. I can't believe it. Somehow I couldn't find a place to get Sweet and Lowdown, really funny comedy with Woody Allen, and he shows his uh, mean-spirited side, but like I said, with a light touch. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. People are going to be furious I didn't put it in. I know. Spicoli, iconic. Casualties of War, underrated war movie I've mentioned before. Probably nobody's going to mention that one, but I think he's really good in that. And U-Turn, Oliver Stone, doing like a uh, film noir. Great cast in that. Sean Penn was really good in it. 
I will not be including two horrific movies, The Gunman, which is just an awful movie, and We're No Angels, one of the great mysteries. Sean Penn, Robert De Niro, directed by Neil Jordan, speaking of The Crying Game, and David Mamet wrote the script, and the movie's abysmal. And won't make this list. Number five is Carlito's Way. Unforgettable is Davy Kleinfeld. Steals the movie from Pacino. Brian De Palma directed. He's got the hair. He's got the glasses playing this uh, very nerdy lawyer who ends up being in love with being a gangster and starts carrying on guns and realizes he's in way too deep and he's way too high on cocaine. Number four is 21 Grams. Really dark, depressing movie. Sean Penn, Naomi Watts, Benicio Del Toro. Uh, our boy Itaritu, before he started winning Oscars for uh, Birdman and The Revenant, 21 Grams, Sean Penn, excellent in. Number three is Milk, playing the first gay mayor in San Francisco, won an Oscar for it, relationship with James Franco. Uh, fantastic movie. I mean, he really embodied that character. If you go back and see clips of Harvey Milk, you see how close Sean Penn was to uh, nailing his character and his charisma and why he was so important for for San Francisco and for, for gay audiences. Number two is Dead Man Walking. He plays an inmate on death row, Tim Robbins. Uh, his wife, Susan Sarandon, plays the heroine of the movie. And Penn is a guy who is just a vile, uh, terrible character, but he's seeking redemption. And it's through his soulfulness um, that you end up having compassion for people who are on death row. You know, it sounds like a, an impossible feat. How could you have compassion for a murderer? But it's because of Penn's acting that he makes you at least think about what it's like for all those incarcerated and the whole concept of second chances um, and the cruelty of um, – capital punishment and number one is mystic river won an oscar for it is that my daughter in there clint eastwood directed some thought he's a little over the top i thought he was brilliant uh especially that scene he just makes you feel the pain of being a dad who lost his child incredible movie was rewarded for an oscar mystic river the best film of sean penn's career i'm glad you had it in there if you didn't i was going to yell at you i think the only two you forgot uh no mention at all all the king's men and i am sam oh, both terrible come on both terrible i am sam this goes back to the Robert Downey Jr. speech okay. from Tropic Thunder. It That's is, why I brought it up. It is so bad and so cloying and so manipulative. I am saying it was a terrible movie. I had a friend of mine who was, likes a lot of like, stupid comedies. So one time he was like, I'm going to impress you. I like a good drama. I am Sam. I go, that movie's awful. That's a complete waste of time. Like That's, that's a movie for people who are like, no, I like serious movies too. I'm like, no, it's a terrible movie. I am Sam. Oh, God, it's awful. And what was the other one? Oh, I'll look at, I never saw it, but I got terrible reviews. I remember people said he was so over the top, just screaming as like this southern politician. I've never seen all the king's men. I'll consider myself fortunate for that one. Actors in three words. Actors in three words, one of our favorites. What do we got here, Dan? Rob Lowe, kicking us off. First one is Coulter, because the Rob Lowe roast was featured for the fact they just eviscerated Ann Coulter, and it was hysterical. And every time I ever see Rob Lowe again, and if I ever get the pleasure of meeting Rob Lowe, I'm going to say those Ann Coulter jokes were epic, and thank you for doing it. Number two is Sex Tape. He has often said the sex tape was the best thing that ever happened to him. He's 22 years old. He gets caught in a sex tape, two girls. One of the girls was 16 years old, because I swear I didn't know she was 16, which I'm sure many a man has said. She was actually, you know, I thought she was 21. But he said it actually changed his life because it, it got him on the road towards sobriety and cleaning up his life. I believe he's 20 years now sober um, and obviously has had a comeback with regards to movies. So I do think of that with him. Number three is handsome. I mean, he's just a handsome man. Rob Lowe, you see Rob Lowe now, you watch him on that roast, the, his roast, and you're like, God, he hasn't aged a day. He's, I don't think he eats carbs. He looks great. All right. I would have went direct TV no, no. <laughs> and Parks and Rec. But uh, moving on, Emma Watson. British. You always take the lap. Beyonce? 
Have that feud with Beyonce. She called her out about female empowerment. Google it. See, I knew I'd surprise you though. Beyonce. I knew she was big on female empowerment. Oh, yeah. took, I, took I didn't know there was a feud with the with the Beehive. All, all the B fans, they don't like Emma Watson. You you ask a B fan about one like, ah, screw Emma Watson. And three is beauty because she's going to be in Beauty and the Beast. Wow, you avoided Harry Potter there too. Yeah, what were the killer bees? British Beyonce beauty alliteration, all for it. Yeah, Hugh Jackman spoke Wolver- about him earlier. Yeah, Wolverine is going to be the first one. Number two is Jean Valjean. Like, who else could play Wolverine than then go in Les Miserables? Jean Valjean. And number three is carbs, because he once said in an interview, he doesn't eat any carbs after breakfast. And I, I think he's a liar. Like, how could, like, have an apple at lunch? Nope. Just just for breakfast. That's it. He says that's how he stays so lean and trim. Okay. I, w- I would argue he's one of the most talented men in Hollywood. Well, we only have three words, so I can't say Yeah. Uh, can't believe you went with carbs. <laughs> yes. That was weird. Uh, Hillary Swank. Celebrated. How many? How many actresses are there who are two-time Best Actress Oscar winners who are that young? Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby. Second word, knockout, because she was a knockout in Million Dollar Baby, one of my favorite movies, one of the saddest movies I've ever seen, and she was awesome in it. But the third one is sparse. Like for an actress who has had two Academy Award-winning Best Actress performances, her filmography is rather sparse. It's not like Hillary Swank has twelve great movies you have to go see. Like, you think about Julianne Moore, and all right, she's a great actress. She has an Oscar, and she has so much. Kate Winslet, okay, she has an Oscar, has done so much. Hilary Swank has two Oscars, and she doesn't have the filmography other actresses, especially her age, have. I was always conflicted on Hilary Swank from an is she hot or is she not perspective. Most would say not. I think so. I think I would say not, too, but always conflicted on her. <laughs> uh, last one is Javier Bardem. Uh, Latino? I think he's Spanish. <laughs> okay, fine. Hispanic? I think Spaniard would, would work. <laughs> Spaniard with the first one, intense. You never see like a lighthearted Javier Bardem movie. It's never like, how about that goofy Javier Bardem? It's always like, ah, just a guy dying. Um, so Spaniard, intense, and De Niro, his favorite actor all time, Robert De Niro. Have you seen Vicky Christina Barcelona? <laughs> yeah, I have seen that. Okay, he's kind of lighthearted okay, that, in that. That's one, You're, but generally Bardem is serious movies. All right. There's, there's one exception to the rule. There always exists, but there's one. A Scorsese story. We've been alerted uh, by our boy Frankel. That is the 45th anniversary of the release of The Godfather, so that's pretty awesome. Is that what you said earlier? Yeah. I, you have anything else to expound no, on no, that, or no, you just, just, we're just it, it floating that feel, one and then getting feel, to Marty? It doesn't feel right because it's March. Like I thought, it, I thought it was a Christmas release. That's why I'm, I'm questioning the validity of that. But if that's what he's telling me, like the movie, if came it's out, on the internet, it's got to be true. I just find it tough. Like you think about celebrated movies, always come out Christmas time. I mean, the big blockbusters come out in the summer. The Godfather got buried in mid March. Yeah, but this is 1972. I suppose, but I'm questioning this, and I guarantee someone's going to tweet me and go, "No, Godfather came out in Christmas or like December for sure." I'll edit it out. <laughs> if it's wrong, this will be edited. If it's right, you're going to hear the whole thing. Bringing out the dead, Martin Scorsese movie came out in 1999, reuniting with Paul Schrader. And, of course, the first thought was, oh, man, the guys from Taxi Driver are back again. Schrader wrote the script, and Scorsese directed it. At the time, it got a lukewarm reception. Uh, Critics liked it, didn't love it, and many felt it was a retread, that it just was not as good as Taxi Driver. And thus, this story about Nicolas Cage, who plays a burnt-out ambulance driver, um, couldn't, couldn't match the earlier greatness. I remember watching the film, and I liked it a lot. Um, but I, maybe I hadn't been as deep in a taxi driver. So now when I watch it again, I think I agree with that original synopsis. I hear some people who tweet me and say, don't you think bringing out the dead is underrated? But I got to be honest with you. When I watched it again, 
I thought it was a good movie, and it's enjoyable for what it is, but I certainly think in Scorsese's over, it is not upper echelon work from him. It is not A-list material. It does feature an A-list performance from Nicolas Cage, which is one reason to watch the movie, because Cage, who can be all over the place and give us so many laughably poor performances, and Bringing Out the Dead, he's actually very good, and he's very grounded. And the link to The Godfather, because when Scorsese was trying to cast it, Coppola said, well, you should check out my nephew, Nick. I think he'd be great in it. And once Marty saw some of Nicolas Cage's movie, I think he saw Leaving Las Vegas in particular. He goes, oh, yeah, he'd be great in this movie. Because he said he, he is this guy who has this humanity within him, but he's you know he's soulful, but he's got these you know, sunken eyes, and he looks like a vampire. And, and Marty goes, I just knew Nick would be very grounded in the way he does it. Um, the story takes place in, you know, it's, it's ostensibly just one crazy night in New York City, and he's got his different partners. John Goodman, first time in a Marty movie. Uh, Tom Sizemore, who's very good and psychotic, and Ving Rhames, who's hilarious. Of all his partners, Ving Rhames is fantastic. Um, so they get calls, and that's what you do when you're working that late night shift in New York City. It's like, yeah, this guy overdosed, you got to save him. Go get this person. Mark Anthony uh, is one of the guys who's a recurring character that's vagrant, who ends up being sick. They have to keep helping him. Um, but ultimately, it's one of those movies where if you watch it, like I said, if you watch it on its own, you say, all right, it's a good little story. It took place. It was, it was made in the late 90s, but it was in New York, made in the 80s. And it's just about this ambulance driver and trying to overcome his demons. It's a good movie. But within Scorsese's over, you go, well, it really doesn't match anywhere near what Taxi Driver was. The ending just kind of ends. Uh, Patricia Arquette is rather annoying, and she plays the love interest of Cage. So it was an interesting movie, I think, when you look at it now in Scorsese's career, what he was doing kind of. It was right before Gangs of New York. And if anything, what's notable about Bringing Out the Dead, it was the last movie he made that's two hours, which you know is a good and bad thing. And in a good way, he's had so much creative license it's almost like the studios finally caught up to him and said, all right, final cut, whatever you want. You want to make a three-hour Wolf of Wall Street? We trust you because it gets good reviews. It's nominated for Best Picture, and it made a ton of money. But Gangs of New York, those detractors say it was too long. It, it was two hours and 50 minutes. Cameron Diaz stuff should have been chopped out. should have been like 2.15. would have been an epic movie. Instead, it's a great movie that has its flaws. Um, Aviator, again, really good movie. Some say it's too long. So I just found bringing up that interesting. This was the last time that Marty goes, all right. I'll make you a two-hour movie. Ever since then, it's always going to be these epic lengths. And his new film, The Irishman, I mean, he's going to have total cut on this. This could be three hours if he wants it to be because Netflix is giving him $120 million and saying, all right, Marty, it's all yours. So bringing out the dead, check it out. If you're a Scorsese fan like me, maybe you'll have a different take on it. Um, like I said, I think it's a good movie but not a great one, but certainly all his movies are always worth watching. We've got a heavy hitters coming up next, big-time celebrities on the next edition of Cinephile for Dan Stanzik and the entire crew. This is Adnan Burke saying thanks for listening. I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.